Amen. Well, one of the things we do from week to week is to highlight some areas of ministry in our church called a ministry moment. And today we want to talk about children's ministry. We are blessed to have two fine directors in the children's ministry. Kathy Risch has been with us for 14 years, and Heidi Cheney has been with us for 11 years. That's an amazing thing. Uh, Kathy, let's give them a hand. <clears throat> Kathy focuses on early childhood uh, development, the nursery through kindergarten, and then Heidi focuses on the elementary school ages, first grade through fifth grade, and together they make a wonderful team. Now, this year, their theme, as has been mentioned, planting the seed of God's word in children's lives. Um, Kathy, tell us how you came up with that theme. Well, we see children's ministry really as a partnership between the home and the church. And we see, as we work together with the parents, that we're both planting the seeds of the truths that will be the foundation for what kids will believe their whole lives. Now, there's uh, a lot in the Bible that you could choose from. How do you kind of focus in on what you want to teach? Well, we found an excellent curriculum that's called the Gospel Project, and it goes chronologically through the Bible. It actually takes three years to finish that study, so it's quite mm. in-depth. And we use it through our three-year-olds all the way through our fifth graders, both hours on Sunday morning. And we love all the aspects of it, but one of our favorite things about it is that it has what's called a Christ connection in each lesson. And this connects the lesson of the Bible, wherever we're at, with the story of Jesus and how he, he is a thread through the whole Bible. Now, three years and kind of the whole of Scripture, that's a lot to retain. How in the world do they remember what they studied? Well, we start out with having the key of having the same teacher every single Sunday that works with the children. And they're committed to teach them each week. And that builds a consistency base. And then some neat aspects of this curriculum is we have a timeline on the wall in each of the children's classroom. It covers all three years hanging on the wall. And with that timeline, some video support, we find that that really teaches the kids this whole chronological approach. And to help the kids kind of take a nutshell home each Sunday, each week there's a question and answer, kind of like, what's the point of today? I was going to share with you the question and answer for today. This is the preschool version. Our story today that the kids are doing is Jesus' temptation. And the question the preschoolers learning is, how did Jesus keep from sinning? And they're all yeah. learning the answer, Jesus remembered God's word from the Bible. Hmm, great. What about parents being maybe more involved Sundays to Sunday? Right. We love to have parents serve right along with us. That's the best way for them to really see and know what's going on. And we do have a lot of parents that are involved in our ministry. And also, the book I'm holding is a book that we've purchased for each of our families. This has all three years, every picture from the timeline, the chronologically approach to the Bible. It has the question and answer that the kids are learning each week. It has their unit memory verses, as well it has a great story um, easy to read story of what's happening that Sunday. Now you and Heidi have been doing this a long time. I'm sure you get some of the same questions over and over. What are some of those common questions? Right. About? There's really, I was thinking of three that are really the most common for us. One question is, so your parents are serving, why do you need other people? And we are committed to having a safe environment for our kids. And to have a safe environment, we need to have a good ratio of parents and adult workers to children. So to have that, we need more than just our parents serving. Mm -hmm. 
also, people will come to us and say, I'm not a school teacher. I don't, I don't know how to teach children. And we want people to know that we provide training to help you um, be able to do that. Maybe, two, you would just choose a support ministry of being a helper in that case as you're learning more about children's ministry. And lastly, what people say, especially in Michigan in the summer, is I need to be gone some. And we say, great. We've put a system in place where you can trade with someone else when you need to be gone. Children's ministry here at South is a great ministry. I trust that you'll be praying for those who are working. Be involved where you can be. And if you're saying, how can I get involved? Well, you can online, register. Call Kathy, call Heidi. Shannon Wayner is in charge of the nursery. Get a hold of her. Usually there's a table out in the concourse area for children's ministry. A lot of different ways to connect. But let me encourage you to pray about that and connect where you can. Let's uh, give Kathy a hand. Thank you very much. And Heidi. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for what you are doing in this place. We don't think we've arrived. We've got so much more uh, to know, to grow in, and to, in other ways, develop. But we thank you for what you have done. And in children's ministry, there have, there's been so much fruit exciting stories of lives that have been changed. We thank you, Lord, for their commitment to teach your word and pray that you would raise up those who will work in this harvest to sow the seed of God's word and perhaps even to see that seed bear fruit. And now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you will open our hearts. Give us minds that are alert. Give us hearts that are submissive. And may your word change us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you know that my wife Nancy and I have five daughters. And two of our daughters are married. And between them, we have four grandsons. My second daughter, Kristen, is expecting in December. It's a boy. Uh, all the grandsons, the four who have been born, have Old Testament names. There's Noah and Benjamin and Eli and Jonathan. So I've admonished Chris that the fifth one needs to have an Old Testament name too. I mean, needs to be consistent, I think. Not that I had any input on the first four, but I thought, you know, let's keep things consistently. So in my own Bible reading that has been taking me through the Old Testament, I've been looking for good boy names to suggest to Kristen and Jeremy. <clears throat> I came across this one. I like this one. Josh Beckishaw. <laughs> this is out of 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 25. This, Josh Beckishaw is a cool guy. He's a son of Heman. He's a, he's a musician in the temple. That's pretty neat. I guess it also could be pronounced Josh Bikasha. But, you know, the mundane names of Joseph and Daniel from the Old Testament. We need something kind of thrilling and exciting. So I suggested that and received a rather cool response. So <laughs> I came up with another name, and this is now my favorite, Hazobiba. <laughs> this is, he is from the tribe of Judah. That's the tribe of our Messiah. He's from good stock. And, uh, ha you know, Hazzy could be his nickname if you don't want to go... Hazo Bibafoko sounds good to me. 
But again, they just said, well, we'll give it some thought. <laughs> and you may say to me, Pastor, I sure hope your Bible reading is put to better purpose than just coming up with weird monikers, miserable names that kids can never get rid of their whole life. And it's, you're right, it should be. Um, my purpose in reading the scripture should not be come up to come up with some weird name for a child. My purpose in reading the scripture should not be just to add more Bible knowledge to my mind. My purpose in reading the scripture should not be, well, I'm a pastor and it's my job. Or I'm a Christian and it's expected. And my purpose in reading the Bible should not be so I can check off today's reading on my schedule and at the end of the year go through the whole Bible. I mean, all of those kind of have their place. But my purpose for reading the Bible is to get to know God. He gave us his word so that we might know him, so that we might know ourselves, and so that he would show us how we can be redeemed, reconciled to God, to show us our sin and the punishment for sin, to show us our Savior Jesus and how he wants to reconcile us and bring us to himself, to show us how we need to walk as believers. The word of God has purpose, and it should radically change our lives. So we've been studying 2 Peter, right? Remember, Peter is very big on this theme of reminding us. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. I want to remind you that he is writing to remind you. He said, the letters I wrote, both the first letter and now this second letter, I'm writing to you as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. There was in chapter 1, around verse 12, kind of the same focus. I'm writing to remind you. I know I have to die soon, but I'm going to do everything I can so that when I'm gone, you'll remember these things. I want to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. What's wholesome thinking? Look at the very next verse. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. And the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. The holy prophets are the ones who gave the word of God. I'm sure that's a reference to the Old Testament prophets. And if you go back to chapter 1 of 2 Peter, he ended that chapter by saying, we're not giving to you fabricated stories that we invented. We're giving to you truth from God. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation or human origin, but the prophecy came as God spoke to holy prophets, and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and what they wrote is God's message to man. Authoritative, accurate, trustworthy, life-changing, the word of God. This is wholesome thinking. And this is what we need to be reminded of. Now, in particular, he's talking about the second coming of Christ and divine judgment that will come and how we ought to live. But he's saying that wholesome thinking is taking God's word into your life and living it out in a very practical way. He told us in chapter 1 that knowing God is the way we participate with the divine nature. We escape the corruption that is in the world. We add to our faith all those seven virtues that he 
uh, mentions in chapter 1. We follow the truth given to us by the holy prophets. But when he gets to chapter 2, he says, there are false prophets out there, unholy prophets, and they want to lead you astray. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. They teach destructive heresies, right? And they're bent on destruction. That's their destiny. And anyone who listens to them will be destroyed. And he talks about their character, and he talks about their deceitful practices, and he talks about their nature, all of this in chapter 2. When he comes to chapter 3, he says, now remember, in these last days, scoffers are going to come, and they're going to be asking the question, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since the world began, things have continued on. Nothing's ever changed. And Peter says, oh, but they are willfully ignorant. They deliberately forget that God did intervene in human history by something called the flood. He mentions it in chapter 2, and he mentions it now again in chapter 3. And everything changed when God judged the world by a flood. But he promised he would never destroy the earth again with a flood. But he did say, when I come again, I will destroy the earth with fire. So that's 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, the Lord's coming seems to be delayed, but only from our perspective. His time frame is different than ours. And the reason why he hasn't come is because he's patient and he's giving you a chance to repent. But understand this, the Lord will come and judgment will follow. And in light of these things, what kind of people should we be? How then should we live? That's Peter's message in chapter 3. Eschatology ought to transform ethics. What we believe about the coming of Christ and divine judgment and the eternal age ought to change the way we live today. Divine truth understood radically transforms our behavior. That's what Peter is saying. So when you get to verse 14, he's kind of summing up his arguments, and he says, so then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, the coming of Christ, the vindication of the righteousness of God, the judgment of all those who rebel against God, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. He's simply reiterating his argument that he made before. How then should we live holy and godly lives? But then he says something that is in some sense, shocking. I mean, you only find it here, really, in the New Testament. Perhaps implied in one other place. Listen to what he says in verse 15. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Why hasn't the Lord come? We've already said. It's not because he's slow in fulfilling his promise. It's not because he's forgotten. It's not because he can't. He's waiting for people to get saved. His patience means salvation. And that's just what our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Paul writes the same way in all his letters. By the way, there are 27 books in the New Testament. Some are letters, some are books, 27. Paul wrote 13 of them. That's pretty amazing. In all of his letters, he says the same thing that I'm saying. Speaking in them of these matters. His letters now contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. When I was mapping out this sermon series, I 
kind of had one final message that included these verses and the final couple of verses. But the more I looked at this, the more I thought this needs to stand alone because there's a message here that you and I need to understand and apply to our lives. And it has to do with the writings of the Apostle Paul and projected upon all the other apostles who wrote the New Testament for us. So here it is. First of all, Peter says that Paul's writings are wise. Did you notice that from verse 15? Paul wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. By the way, I think it's important for us to notice that Peter calls Paul our dear brother. And that is significant because these guys had a knockdown drag out back in, in Galatians chapter 2. Do you remember this story? Peter is the apostle to the Jews, right? Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. The two key leaders of the early church. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, the first half is about the apostle Peter. The second half is the, about the apostle Paul as they take the gospel forth. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth, to the Gentiles. Now, Peter was one of the first ones to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And when he did, there's a lot of questions that came up. Should the Gentiles become Jews? And the answer was, no. So Peter began to live like the Gentiles, maybe talk like them, eat like them, spend time in their homes, whatever it might have been, until some Jews from Jerusalem came and said, Peter, that's not kosher. What you're doing is not right. And Peter was intimidated, and he backed off. And Paul got upset. So Galatians says that Paul rebuked Peter to his face in public. The reason he did that is because others were being led astray, by, like Barnabas and maybe even the whole church. Paul said, this is not right. You're a hypocrite. You say one thing and do another. And I don't know for how long. I have no idea that there must have been some tender, hurt feelings there. But here's the point. 10, 12 years later, whenever it was, Peter writes this and says, My dear brother Paul, I love it when Christians mend fences. I love it when Christians settle arguments and resolve conflicts with one another. Don't you? They shall know we are Christians by our love. And I'm afraid they know that we're not Christians by our lack thereof. The church is so divided and often divided. If they are divided on, on areas of doctrine or judgment, they often do it with a horrible spirit. And the world sits back and says, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. Love compels the world to listen. The cross compels the world to listen and the church should live the gracious life of Christ. So, somehow these two got together again, and I praise the Lord for that. So, Peter is now quoting Paul to support his argument, as you and I would quote an authority that our audience knows and appreciates. He says, our dear brother Paul, he wrote to you and said the same thing that I'm saying. He writes the same way in all of his letters. 
And probably the message was very similar. The second coming of Christ affects the way we live. We ought to live holy and godly lives because there's coming a judgment and there's the end of the age and there's a new world dawning. But Peter says, Paul wrote to you, and yet none of the 13 letters was addressed specifically to the people that Peter wrote to. The people who are dispersed abroad because of persecution, probably primarily in what is now called Turkey. But what you have to understand is that now, somewhere in the early 60s AD, Paul's letters had been collected and written and copied and dispersed among all the churches. In fact, some of Paul's letters were intentionally circular letters sent to one church, then to be sent to another church. When Nancy and I first got married in 1975, her family, the Wilson clan, had a circular letter. It would go from the oldest sister, Irene, down to Joyce, and from Joyce to Alice, and from Alice to Rob, and then Rob would send it to the baby of the family, Nancy. You would get the circular letter, these five letters, and you would throw away yours that is traveled around, and you would write a new one and then send it as it was intended. It's very interesting that that circular letter would often take two or three years to get around to all five families. And I won't mention which family member kept it for a long time, but it wasn't Nancy. I mean, this is before the internet, right? I mean, now you, you jot something down and send it, and boom, everyone has it immediately. Well, back in Paul's day, it was before the internet. And he had circular letters. These messages were so important that they would be written down, copied, and taken to the churches. In fact, the book we call Ephesians might have only had the name Ephesians written in the blank and it was taken from that time in the, the manuscripts because it might have been sent to the church of Laodicea first or Hierapolis or one of the other churches. It was probably a circular letter. So Paul wrote to them. They had received Paul's writings. They read them and listened to them and gained wisdom from them. The wisdom came from God. This wasn't Paul's wisdom. He wasn't just a great writer, an intelligent, uh, thoughtful, insightful theologian. He was those things by the grace of God, but what he wrote came from God. Remember chapter 3, verse 2? This is the holy prophet, not the false apostle. This is the one speaking the commands of Christ as the apostles were commanded to do. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus left, he said, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he'll remind you what I said so you can write those things down. That was primarily given to the apostles. And as we already stated in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, this is not man's fabricated story. This is revealed truth from God that the apostles wrote down as the Holy Spirit played overseer of the whole project so that the end result is the infallible word of God given to us. Isn't that amazing? The Bible is a wise book, not because of its human authors, but because of its divine author. Secondly, we notice from the writings of Paul that they are challenging. Did you notice that in verse 16? He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters that we've been discussing, but his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. And I love this verse. I love the fact that the Apostle Peter couldn't understand the Apostle Paul. Makes me feel good. 
Because when I'm reading Paul, sometimes I scratch my head and I say, what in the world are you saying? I don't know what portion of scripture Peter was referring to, but I have some guesses. They're only guesses. It could have been Romans chapter 9 through 11. That's tough stuff when it talks about Israel being elected and who are you to ask God a question and God does whatever he wants to do and you scratch your head and say, what about human responsibility? And you can't quite put it all together. Or maybe Romans chapter 7 where Paul said sanctification is kind of like this. I don't want to do this bad thing, but I do it. I want to do this good thing, but I don't do it. And I'm schizophrenic. I'm battling back and forth. There's some writings of Paul that are hard to understand about the timing of the second coming, of our being gathered to him and the end of the age. Bible scholars debate them and they come up with different positions so that when you study eschatology, there's pre-mill and post-mill and ah-mill and the same thing with the tribulation and the church is often divided over these things and some of them are hard to understand in the writings of Paul. By the way, this phrase was used in the first century in extra-biblical language, especially in Greece with the Oracle of Delphi. In the city of Delphi, there was something on akin to the occult. There was an oracle there. You could go to Delphi. In fact, you can visit the ruins today. And you'll see where the prophets would get this message from the spirit, the oracle of Delphi. And then they would give the prophecy to the person asking. Of course, you had to pay some money to get a prophecy. It's much like going to a fortune teller, you know. And by the way, the answers were very similar. They were notoriously ambiguous, hard to understand, impossible sometimes to understand. Like the king who went to the Oracle of Delphi one time and said, I'm going out to battle against this nation. I need to know, should I go into battle? And what is going to happen? And the Oracle came back with this answer. If you go to battle, you will destroy a great nation. Think about that for a moment. <laughs> what great nation? Us or them? Oracle didn't say. That'll be $100, please. I mean, that's the way fortune tellers work. Give me your money, and I'll give you an ambiguous answer that could kind of fit any definition, any situation, and play it safe. And so Paul uses a common term and says, you know, sometimes the scriptures are hard to understand, but not because they're merely ambiguous. It's not because they're made up. They're hard to understand because they come from God, who is infinite, and they're being squeezed into a finite capacity into our human minds and, and hearts. Plus, the language goes from God's truth into human language, and sometimes he uses figure of speech and metaphor, and you and I struggle understanding the truth. And by the way, this is proof that the scripture is divine, because if I could understand it, it would be only human. Embrace the mystery because it means this book is from God. But notice, these false teachers of chapter 2 would twist, distort the scriptures to their own destruction. They proved to be ignorant and unscholarly as they would twist the scriptures. Very interesting Greek word. Greek word there, it, in the NIV, the word distort, it literally means to torture someone. And it has the idea, as in the ancient world, when a person would be put on the rack, 
hands tied above their heads, feet tied, and they would be in this mechanism where with gears, you could turn the gears and it would stretch the person on the rack to the place that their limbs would be pulled out of their sockets. And that's the very word that Peter is using. Some people distort the scriptures. They put the scriptures on the rack. You can hear some of these people uh, on your TV. You can hear them from pulpits all across this land. They distort the scripture, just like the false teachers. Go back to chapter 2, those first three verses. With destructive heresies, they lead people into destruction. And these people who distort the scriptures will destroy themselves. That's why it's so important that when you hear a message, you go home and say, is that biblical? You study the scripture to make sure that it's true. And our desire here, and I know this is true for Pastor Doug and Pastor Ben and whoever would preach up here to the church itself, our greatest desire is to never mishandle the word. We want to make it clear. We want to understand it so we can preach its truth to you. But there's some people whose desire is to distort the word of God. By the way, the message of destruction is all through 2 Peter. Did you notice it? Some people don't like that message of destruction. They would just like to think that everyone is going to be saved in the end. But if I'm not going to distort the scripture, if I'm just going to come to the scripture and listen to what it has to say to me, I've got to come away with some kind of theology of ultimate judgment and destruction. It's mentioned in chapter 2. It's mentioned again in chapter 3, verse 7, when the whole heavens and earth will be destroyed. And now people are destroyed when they ignore and distort the scriptures. J.I. Packer, in his wonderful book, Knowing God, said, do you believe in divine judgment? That is, do you believe that God will be your judge? Many do not. God is a father, a friend, a helper, even a teacher, fine. They can agree with that. Their faces light up. They're on the same wavelength with you. But speak of God as a judge, and they frown, and they shake their heads, and their minds and hearts recoil from such a horrible idea. I want you to know that 2 Peter tells us there is, a coming a day, there is coming a day when God will judge the world and everyone in it. There's something else we need to say about Paul's writings. They're not only wise and challenging, Paul's writings are scripture. And here is where Peter says something that we don't really have anywhere else. He says these false teachers distort the messages of Paul as they do the other scriptures. The letters of Paul are distorted just like they do the other scripture. In other words, Peter is saying that the writings of Paul belong to the same category as Old Testament scripture. The word scripture is found over 50 times in the Bible, only once in the Old Testament. And it means writings that are authoritative because of their divine source. Peter is saying that the writings of Paul are to be considered just as authoritative as the Old Testament canon because they're on equal status 
with the word of God in the Old Testament. This is the only time this is seen in the entire New Testament with one possible verse implied in 1 Timothy chapter 5. That's an astounding statement. Now, just for a moment, I want us to think then of Paul's writings. In fact, we could enlarge this to the apostolic writings of the New Testament being the revelation from God called Scripture. Because what Peter is saying about Paul's writings is connected to what was said in verse 2 about the holy prophets and the apostles and connected to what was said back in chapter 1 about all of this truth coming from God himself. The New Testament calls the Old Testament Scripture over and over and over again. Let's just go through a quick list. We don't have time to say much about them. But I just want you to see from 12 examples how different portions of the Old Testament are called Scripture. In Daniel chapter 2, the only Old Testament reference, Daniel said, I understood from the Scriptures the word of God given to Jeremiah the prophet. And then he quotes about the captivity from Jeremiah 29. Daniel calls the book of Jeremiah Scripture. The authoritative writings that come from God and writings that are true. Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Jesus said, have you ever read in the scriptures? Then he quoted from Psalm 118. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus stood up and read from Isaiah 61 and said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your he hearing. Isaiah is scripture. If you read Luke chapter 24, Jesus talking to the two men on the road to Emmaus, he began with the scriptures. Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, they're all called scriptures. These are the three categories of the Old Testament. In John chapter 7, it says Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem, as the scripture says. That's Micah chapter 5. John 19, another scripture says they look on the one they pierce. That's from the book of Zechariah. In Romans chapter 4, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. That's a quotation from Genesis 15. The book of Genesis is scripture. In Romans 19, the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. That's a quotation from Exodus chapter 9. In Romans chapter 11, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknow, foreknew. Don't you remember what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? Quotes from 1 Kings 19. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, the scripture says, don't muzzle the ox. That's a quotation from Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy is scripture. James chapter 2, if you keep the royal law found in scripture, that's a quotation from Leviticus 19. And James chapter 4 says, the scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's the book of Proverbs. We simply have illustrations throughout the New Testament that the Old Testament is divinely inspired it is authoritative it is God's message to man and now get this Peter says Paul's preaching and or Paul's letters are on the same authority that's mind-boggling so you and I hold in our hands a Bible Old and New Testament 66 books it's not the invention of man it is the word of God and it must be in I mean, what does all this mean to us? Well, first of all, the New Testament is just like the Old Testament. It's God's book. The Bible 
is the only place where the true wisdom of God is revealed. And because this book has its source in God's heart and mind, not man, this book is authoritative. You don't place yourself over the book and criticize it. The book is over you and judges you. Where are you in relationship to the book? I know a lot of scoffers, a lot of skeptics are here, but as Bible believers, we're here, aren't we? The book is over us. It's authoritative. And finally, if we ignore the truth of this book, we'll ignore it to our own destruction. Yeah, in the end, there's coming a judgment day and all must appear before the judgment bar of God and the Bible talks about a resurrection of the righteous unto life that never ends and a resurrection of the unjust. And after judgment, they endure punishment that never ends. That's what the Bible says. And so we understand that this book is alive and active and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it can change your life. It can reveal the thoughts and intents of your heart like nothing else can. And when you read it and believe it, it can radically change your life. I've used this story before, but it's such a good story. I don't think you'll mind hearing it again. And if you've never heard it before, I hope it illustrates how powerful God's word is. It comes out of the ministry of the Gideons. Gideons are a group of businessmen who donate their own money to buy Bibles, usually New Testaments, and to give them out free, just randomly to people. And they do this all over the world. This particular Gideon was standing on a street corner, I believe it was in South America, handing out New Testaments. Many people would take them, but one guy said, kind of in a mocking tone, if I take that book from you, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to rip it out page by page. And as I rip out each page, I'm going to roll it into a cigarette and I'm going to smoke it. I love the answer of the Gideon. He wasn't taken back by this. He said, that's great if you'll just do one thing. Read the page before you smoke it. And the guy was a bit taken back, and he said, well, okay. And so he handed him the Bible. The guy smoked his way through Matthew, and he smoked his way through Mark. <laughs> he smoked his way through Luke. He got all the way to John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that guy gave his heart to Jesus Christ. Why? This book knows you better than you know yourself. And it is the power of God. To read it is to have your life radically exposed. To read it is to hear the kind invitation from God to trust his son and have your sins forgiven and to be saved. To read it is to have your life forever changed.